0: where are all my friends? I can't believe I'm saying this, but I am joined by Seth Godin. And uh, dude, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. This is a really crazy moment for me.
1: Well, it's a pleasure, Andrew. And thank you for leading. Showing up with the podcast on the regular is not an easy thing to do. It's an unsung task. And if I can support it, I'm happy.
0: I feel like there is like a handshake of podcasters of just knowing what it takes to do it. So it's like if somebody hits you up for an episode, you're like, yeah, I got you. But no, I think it's really cool. And I think that you set an example that I watch a couple people do who have really grown in the space where they they pay it forward and they pass the elevator back down. And that I think is an example that I aspire to continue to grow and do. But seeing that you have accomplished so much and you're still down to just jump on a pod and share your knowledge, I, I, respect, the, I respect the hell out of. So thank you. Well, thanks. Yeah. So you have a new book, and I'm very excited to talk about it because I'm very into a lot of your books. But before getting to that, I was thinking, I am a huge fan of yours and I've read a bunch of books and listened to a bunch of podcasts and watched a bunch of interviews. But I think for my audience, they might not all realize like how long you've been in the game and what you've done. And I even in, in my digging, I found little bits. I have an idea of where you're from. And I kind of want to know a little bit about like early you and how you got to this spot because it's so cool. And I think that might make everybody listening just understand why I'm so excited to be talking to you right now.
1: Um, well, I I need to highlight a couple traps that are really important. Okay. Um the first one is that. The media celebrates an overnight success. It celebrates somebody who comes out of nowhere and then has a million Instagram followers or whatever. If you win the lottery, good for you. But that's not a plan. That's not a strategy. That almost everybody who's doing work that you care about had a lot of stumbles, a lot of discovery that they had to go through to get it there. Now, you know, I'm a child of privilege. I won the birthday and parent lottery. I totally acknowledge and embrace that. But at the same time, lots of people who started next to me gave up long before I gave up. Really? And you know, I got 800 rejection letters in a row when I started out as, as a book packager. Uh, my English teacher wrote in my high school yearbook that I was the bane of her existence and I would never amount to anything. Uh, AOL, which was our biggest customer for a while, when our company made an error and I wanted to fly down and apologize in person, they said, well, if you show up on our campus, we will have you arrested. So we remember these failures because it's the failures that make us who we are. Yeah. And you know, if you listen to the great podcast, The History of Rock and Roll in 500 Songs, what you will hear from Andrew is that just about all of the legends that we admire hacked their way through the first couple of years because they weren't born as Marvin Gaye or as Bob Dylan or name whoever you want. They became that person. So I'm not in the category of Marvin or Bob, but I have written uh, 20 bestsellers in a row. But before that, I was a book packager for that, or in the middle of that, I invented part of the internet. Email marketing is my thing. Um, So it's been a great ride, but it's all been populated by not seeking a shortcut and figuring out how to do work I'm proud of, as opposed to doing... What feels like a hustle.
0: You just so casually said that you invented part of the internet that like, is that the thing? Is that like, cause that's like a little bit before me. Like that's how the, oh, like the early, early, like Seth is a legend is email marketing. Like that was you that was that early on that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's so
0: sick. I didn't even realize that like that, like I know you as an author. I know you as like, I see it as an afterthought that you're so good at the internet. That's crazy.
1: Yeah. I got my first email address in 1976. We built email marketing campaigns for CompuServe, Prodigy, and AOL. Uh, When the World Wide Web came along, I looked at it and I said, this doesn't make any sense. It's never going to work. It's slow and there's no business model. So that cost me $40 billion. Um, And then the company we built Ended up working with American Express and Carter Wallace and Procter & Gamble. And then I sold it to Yahoo and I was one of their five vice presidents. <laughs> that's
0: wow. Okay, sick. I have another question. As I, as I listen to and read your work, there's times where you mention the music industry. And I can tell that you have friends in the music industry. And that's my roots. Like I started as a tour manager and, and touring mm-hmm. the country and worked at record labels. And every time I hear you nod to it, I can tell that you know. <laughs> did you ever have any professional involvement in it, or has it just been something that you've been a fan of and been, had friends around?
1: It's mostly that I have somehow lucked into knowing an extraordinary range of magical performers and producers, but I did have a record label for a while. You did? And um, I learned a lot from that. But what I like about the music business is, first, it is a very personal form of creation. And- I like writing, I like poetry, not as a reader, I don't understand it, but I like the the passion that comes to it. And music sort of captures so much of that. But I also like that it has very clear boundaries and measurement. That's the industry part, right? That music can be great, even if it doesn't sell a lot of copy. Yeah. But when we think about the long tail, when we think about Casey Casey, when we think about the top 40 and jazz clubs and payola and everything in between... You know, I I will go for a walk with a very famous record executive. We go for walks all the time. And I said, hey, what's the the key to having a hit record? And he said, oh, there's no question. It's got to have a great song. And I said, so how do you know if it's a great song? And he said, because it's a hit record. (laughs) And he didn't think he was being funny. That's just the way he looked at the world. So there are a lot of people in the business who you would know their names. Yeah. Um, who have no strategic insight whatsoever. They're just winging it. There's emotion.
0: There is a very strong element of intuition and emotion in it, which I find fascinating as well.
1: But it's also possible to do really well strategically. And Barry Gordy is a great example of that. You know, there were like six rules to make a Motown song. That wasn't why Motown succeeded. It succeeded because Barry Gordy understood strategically how the structure of the music business of the 1960s Wow. I didn't know you had a record label. What what era did you have a record label? in? So two companies, one named Sony, one named uh, Philips, patented the cassette tape. Yeah. And when the patent ran out, they needed to replace that income stream. So they came up with the CD. And the CEO of Sony said that the CD had to be able to hold Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, his favorite, which is comes the fastest version you can find is 74 minutes. And so they had to lower the resolution of digital recording to fit yeah. Beethoven's fifth on the CD, yeah, which made it easier for Napster to exist. Um, but it made it harder to come up with a reason to buy CDs once you could stream them for free. Mm. So Sony, as the CD patent was running out, invented the SACD. And an SACD is a double layer CD that holds four times as much information. As well. And when they launched the SACD, they forgot to make recorders that could record in that format. They only had it a dozen or so. So you had to be a Sony label or affiliated with a Sony label to get one of these machines. And they were selling these CDs, SACDs at the time for 35 bucks. And all you could get was like old Rolling Stone stuff. I found a guy in London who had made by hand a recorder that could record in DSD. So I got one for Uh, 5,000 bucks and I started a record label live to two track with two uh, large diaphragm German microphones I learned how to produce. I learned how to record. I found uh, duos, rented a church, and we went live to True Track with no compression, straight uh, to the master tape, and then straight to SACD. One of them is on uh, Spotify. So if you want to look for uh, a, an album called Sauce by a group called Godi- Wait, no, an album called Waiting for Godiva by a group called Sauce. The story goes on for beyond that, but I learned a lot. It was
0: fun. There's a really special lesson just in like you saw a cool moment and you disrupted it. And I think that that's a lot of what inspires me about you is it doesn't matter the industry. It doesn't matter on a Seth's blog, e- daily email. You can kind of apply it to everything. These lessons that you've you've learned. But that's... Having personal experience in the music industry, everything you just said isn't a a tiny undertaking. So, the fact that you did the research and that you went through all of that to do that says a lot about you. So, respect. That's cool. Thank you for sharing that. Let's talk about this book because... I'm really excited about this. Uh, I first found you through Lynchpin, and that book really, really resonated with me. Just the idea of taking pride in your work. like Even when I first read Lynchpin, I didn't own anything of my own. I was an employee. It gave me so much confidence. It empowered me. It made me think about the work that I do differently. That in itself leveled me up and it made me better and it made me more valuable. And that's why I always tell everybody to read that book. It's like, it's not just a book for employers. It's a book for people that want to just become great at something. So now with the new book, Song of Significance, I think there's a lot of parallels in that of like how work is changing and... I'm so glad that you wrote that because you're elaborating on a topic that I think is really important and becoming more and more important as AI and Mm -hmm. as technology advances. And there's a lot of replaceable work. Where was your head at when you wrote that book? And like, what was the idea behind it? I think
1: that everyone I know, and probably many of the people you know, are feeling the stress that's coming from the end of industrialism. Industrialism yeah. started in 1909 with the gusher in Texas that brought the era of cheap energy to the world. And basically, if you add cheap energy to machines, you can build an industrial entity that cranks stuff out in volume. Mm-hmm. And the short term effect is it makes everybody rich because you can get stuff so much cheaper than it used to be. In 1910, the average person in America owned two pairs of shoes and two pairs of pants. And what we did was we created this engine that just made stuff and did it as yeah. conveniently as possible. But what happened was as we added computers to the mix, people turned into machine. They call it human resources. How much can we suck out of these people? How little can we pay them? How much can we control them? When COVID came along and work from home showed up, the lie of it all became really yeah. obvious because you'll go to six hours of Zoom meetings in a day. Not because you need to have a Zoom meeting because the but because they're taking attendance, and yes. Then you'll see some megalomaniac billionaire buy a company and start publicly humiliating employees and firing them for fun, and yeah, that's the mindset of the people who own the machines is they're in charge, right. but
0: they're not in charge. What was, you said something about that in the practice as well, right? You were talking about like, at least just say what the actual meaning is. Like it's, if you're, you're not doing a meeting to get everybody on the same page, you're doing a meeting. So an executive can feel good. And that's more comfortable than saying no, like it's that, right? Right, Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so where we are right now, I think, is at a fork in the road. And you know I used to be a techno utopian optimist who thought that the internet was going to do nothing but make good things happen by connecting mm. people. And we've seen so many of the side effects. And one of the side mm. effects is it has dehumanized human interaction. It is easier yeah. to troll somebody if you don't know them. Yeah. And I want us as leaders, as managers, as employees to retake our humanity to demand the Mm -hmm. dignity that is ours, and to be able to show up at work and say, look, there's only two kinds of work. There's industrial work where there's a manual and you're going to thin slice the job and make me as unimportant as possible. Or there's work that I am proud of where I am leveling up, not moving down, where I'm connecting to other human beings and doing something. that. If we're going to do that work, let's get real about it. Let's shake hands on it and let's hold each other responsible. But don't pretend that the other one is human because it's not. As you say that, as
0: I read these books, I find it to be very empowering. A phrase in my head that I tell myself, which I mean nothing but great by, is I welcome you to fire me. Mm -hmm. Every time I work with somebody, like, I don't want to be afraid of being who I am. Like, I'm very, like, I'm confident in the person that I am, and I want to be myself. I want to bring my unique take to it. I want to be Andrew, who everyone's like, oh, yeah, he's going to be really excited about this thing. Like, yeah, I, I am. And maybe that's not the right fit for certain things, but maybe it's the perfect fit for others. And a lot of your books have reminded me of like, that's the thing that you can't replace. As you get into it in the Song of Significance, I think like the, as you start to think about like what makes a job, the best job ever. And what are real skills? I think that that really resonated with me because it reminds people to really embrace being who you are and to, to understand that, like everybody can make a great spreadsheet or AI could do it for you. I'm sure soon, whatever, but like the, the very human elements about who we are are actually so valuable. Um, what have you like What stands out to you about that? Like, what have you learned? What do you love seeing
1: when you work with people these days? Well, you know, I've been using GPT-3 a lot. And um, you can say to it, please write me 500 words comparing Aldous Huxley to George Orwell. And it will do a much better than mediocre job at that. But it will also do it for free, instantly, without complaint. So if you're going to bother working with a human who you have to pay, Mm -hmm. who isn't Mm -hmm. instant, Who might complain? There better be an upside. And what we need to figure out is what does that upside look like? So, before you and I started this conversation, we were chatting for a minute and I knew it was going to be a great podcast because you showed up with the energy of someone who wanted to be here, not someone who was just phoning it in. That is what we are looking for as we spend our days. These are real skills the real skills of honesty and intent and humor and empathy and connection and possibility. Can't get any of those from Mm GPT-3. And yet, if we look at somebody's resume, if we look at how we screen resumes, if we look at what you get tested on for a job interview, they're all testing you like you're going to be their next (laughs) GPT-3.
0: As if they don't realize you can just go online and type in what you need. Exactly.
1: If I need 20 photos retouched, I got to tell you, I'm not looking for human interaction. I'm looking for cheap photo retouching. So I go on Upwork, There's somebody in Romania or whatever. They do it in an hour for $7. Even Steven, they owe me nothing. I owe them nothing. But real work. We owe each other. We owe each other before, after, and during.
0: And I don't think that goes away, right? Like, I think that for as long as humans exist, as long as we're buying and selling anything, that human element, like the idea that like you can have a pretty remarkable product. And at a certain point, the only thing that changes is how you feel about buying it. Like that's all human. Well,
1: right? I wish I could be optimistic as you are about um, that it doesn't go away. <laughs> it doesn't go away if we fight. So, oh wow, I'll, t- I'll talk about two banking experiences. The banking experience of everyone on this call who is listening is that if you owe the bank a payment on your credit card debt, mm-hmm. they're not your friend and they're not a human and they don't see you as a human and mm-hmm. they will write two letters in all caps and squeeze whatever legal thing they have to get the money. And it turns out the repayment rate on credit card debt isn't that high. Kenya, the last time I was there working with Acumen, there is a bank called Juhudi Kalimo. And the way Jehudi Kalimo uh, works is they loan you the money to buy a cow. And then you use the money from the milk to pay back the loan. And after a year, you own the cow free and clear. And <clears throat> the repayment rate on the loans is 99%. And the reason the repayment rate on the loans is so high is that in order to get the loan, someone in the community nominated you, and they're responsible. And they meet once a week in a church that's not being used as a church. And they, sit, they start with a, a hymn and a song. And then they sit in a circle, and they count out the shillings. And <laughs> I was in the meeting watching the chairman of this particular group and the circle of people, more than half of them were women, going through this ritual. Because obviously they could just buy a machine that would count the money. And the counting of the money was a spiritual interaction of community. And the reason they have a 99% repayment rate is you don't owe the money to the bank. You owe the money to your neighbor.
0: Wow. So it's human. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it says so much that you've seen what you've seen, that you've done what you've done and you've accomplished what you've accomplished. And you come back to these very fundamental core values of like these these simple human things. It, it's a strong reminder to me of how valuable that actually is, right? And
1: it's available to everybody. I'm not right. unique. This isn't a gift. I wasn't born mm-hmm. with this. What we have is the chance to choose to see things that we can leverage going forward. And we have been indoctrinated and brainwashed by our system to instead just see insufficiency and greed and consumerism. What will be on the test and what does my boss want? And I guess my lonely job is to keep reminding people that we have more potential than that.
0: So then question to that, I think that on both the employer and the employee side, a real strong topic in the new book is just what makes a job the best job ever. And that mm-hmm. works for both people. And that again, like really, really resonated to me. So like, what, what's your thought on that? Like, as you look to the new generation, uh, as we're, I don't know, we're talking in 2023, but like, what
1: do you think that's going to look like? So I asked 10,000 people in a hundred countries, what was the best job you ever had in life? Yeah. And I gave them more than a dozen choices, including I didn't have to work very hard and I got paid a lot yeah overwhelmingly the most common answers were i accomplished more than i thought i could and i was treated with respect damn i don't think that's going to change but we don't give people jobs like that what we do instead is give them soft tissue versions of Mm gpt3 and we (laughs) grind them to powder yeah so i think the opportunity is to realize someone can race to the bottom faster than your company can race to the bottom that if your goal is to win search on amazon and be five cents cheaper than something else that got drop shipped from who knows where, you're going to lose that race. Someone's willing to cut more corners than you. Yeah. But if you want to race to the top and be the one and only, well, some people are going to seek you out and some people are going to find you and they will pay you fairly. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I make mediocre average stuff, please pay me extra.
0: What do you think as you interviewed those people I mean, like, again, you've worked with so many people, you've built so many successful things. Like, what were some of the skills that stood out to you? I don't think a lot of people aspire to, like, have the best job. I think more and more people want to be their own entrepreneurs. And I mean, so many of the people I talk to on this podcast, it's like, wow, sick. Like, you found a way to be your own boss and do your own thing. (laughs) However, I think people misconstrue that as, like, these skills that we talk about it's how I read Lynchpin. It's like, okay, yeah, cool. You could work for a company, but you can apply this to yourself. Like, what do you think are the most valuable values or skills for somebody to focus on if they want to kill it at their job or become that next generation entrepreneur?
1: Um, well, just to clarify one thing, I did not talk to 10,000 people. Oh. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have a blog where I could just ask 10,000 people to <laughs> okay. fill out a survey. <laughs> it's it just taking you at a long little time. Booth.
0: A bunch of people are lining <laughs> exactly. up and you're like, hi, thank you. Like with a little pencil. <laughs> thank <laughs> right. you so much.
1: Those okay. little golf pencils. Um, yeah, so <laughs> if you work for yourself, you have the world's worst boss
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
1: because they call you in the, in the middle of the night, they wake you up, they yell at you about bad things that haven't happened yet. They remind you that you're not working hard enough and you're not very competent, but you still have customers. And so there's not a lot of difference between the skills we need to bring to our customers and the skills we need to bring to the best job we ever had. And yeah. those are the human skills that some people call attitude. But they're not different than the skills that are easy to measure. They're just hard to measure. So how many words per minute can you type? Can you program in C++? These are easy to measure skills. But are you empathic? Are you creative? Are you able to be funny? Do you see patterns? These, some people call them attitudes. I think they're skills too. So when we think about what would be the very best set of, quote, skills we'd want in a doctor, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I would like it if the doctor had read the medical journals and understood what defibrillation was. Mm -hmm. But all the doctors have. So what I really want is a doctor who's going to care more than they have to. Mm -hmm. And what I really want is a doctor who will take the extra 30 seconds to understand what I'm afraid of and what I need to know. Mm. That's the difference between a great doctor and a good doctor. Yeah. But medical school burns it out of you. Yeah. Because the indoctrination is you need to be a cog in the system. Mm -hmm. So. In all of these things, the discussion, whether you're 23 or 63, is, do I care enough to develop skills that other people value?
0: That's a Seth's blog right there. You know how sometimes (laughs) it's just (laughs) like the one? That's it. That's a good one. That is a very good question to ask yourself in anything you're doing. Thank you for that. Well, thanks. You share so much. You know so much. I would imagine a lot of people come to you as just like, oh, Seth, fix my problem. Give me advice. This, this, and this. Like, what gives you inspiration right now? Like, how do you keep going? How do you still have that spark after all of this?
1: Well, the first thing I'll tell you is I don't do any consulting at all. Because really? it keeps me. it keeps me sane. If I care about someone and they ask, I'll give them free advice. What I often find is that when someone asks for free advice, they don't often do anything with it. Because what they're really looking for is reassurance what they're really looking for is please tell me that what I am already planning to do is exactly the right thing. Yes. So there's a fine line. You you have to walk there. What inspires me are people like you, people who are choosing to do this heavy lifting that I am learning as much from this conversation as you are.
0: Do you still see that often? Like in your work, what's the current vibe of, of work and, and what people are up to? Like, are you inspired often?
1: Um, I would say that Outside of my little bubble, what mm-hmm. I am seeing is that more and more people around the world, not just in the United States, who work for industrial entities, yeah. have come to the conclusion that the deal they got sold is a fraud. Yeah, And they're going to show up and do what they promised to do, but they're not going to do more than that yeah. because the industrialists didn't deserve it. Yeah, But at the same time, I'm seeing a generation of people coming along who are saying, what a chance it is to do service. What a chance it is to bring dignity to the other in front of me by yeah. choosing to yeah. do more than I said I would. Yeah. And I think what it comes down to is agency. Is it your choice? Mm. And so I'm optimistic as we face down our climate problem that there's a yeah. whole generation of people coming along who are saying, you know what? I don't need three cars. I'm fine without getting on a plane and traveling around the world. Let's get to work because it's worth it. To
0: also agree with you on what you just said, I sometimes will find myself so uninspired. I live in Los Angeles and I'll go and I'll do a basic run of like groceries, get food from a, you know, fast casual restaurant. And the whole experience is so transactional and the bar is on the floor. And it sometimes inspires me because it's like, if the bar is this low and people can survive just by caring, you have such an advantage. But I also then try to like thank people and remind people that like, giving a shit is the most rewarding thing ever so if you see that person at target or wherever and they just like do that little extra thing i'll always stop and be like thank you so much or like whatever because i think people forget that it's rewarding to care and that you know like those little things like not only does it make the day of somebody else but you feel better like you go to sleep at night happier when you give a shit so that's my little thing to that um beautiful as far as 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 climate and all of that because that's another thing that i've noticed you've been talking a lot about you the carbon almanac did you write that fully on your own or was that a a
1: collaborative project i organized uh, a project i worked mm-hmm. full time on it 50 70 80 hours a week for uh, a year and a half with 300 other people in mm. 40 countries it then oh, okay. grew to 1900 people in 90 countries and I very much did not write it. Okay, okay. I created the conditions for a group of people to produce an award-winning, best-selling book that's been translated into languages around the world because I felt stupid about the climate. I wrote my first blog post about climate 16, 17 years ago. It didn't change anything. Go figure. One blog post couldn't solve a problem. (laughs) Um, And I thought if I am hesitating to talk about it, I bet other people who care are hesitating. Yeah. How do we model a system that I've captured in Song of Significance where people can come together to do work they care about? Yeah. And I had no other agenda other than I am capable of organizing this, so I will. Wow. Because that's something that when
0: I think about the environment, like, I think that you still somehow have a positive outlook on it, where every time I look at the facts and you look, it's like, it's very sad. Like, you see it and you can feel so quickly helpless. And I really respected, like, even Akimbo, your podcast, you talk about it a little bit. You reference the Patagonia story and all of that. Uh, and like kind of the thing of like, it's kind of impossible to tell people to just go walk, you know, like that's not real. It's not a reality. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't make for me as a consumer, I don't feel more inspired to make the world better to just feel this guilt. But like, do you still have optimism? Like after you put all that together, like for somebody who maybe feels like myself, where it's like, of course, I want to make the world and the environment a better place. Of course, I want to make it sustainable and, and last out for generations to come. But it feels like it it just feels like I don't know where to start. Like, did you walk away from that with like a tidbit that you could inspire people and be like, hey, no, no, like we can all do something?
1: I think it's fair to say that the the hundreds of us went through very similar experiences in building this. We went in thinking we got a lot of work to do, but it's doable. And then Mm -hmm. we became sad and depressed, overwhelmed by how much worse the problem is than almost anybody. Yeah. But then we got to war. So I came away with it believing several things. Number one, the earth is going to be fine. The earth doesn't care because it's just a planet. Humans are not going to be fine. But the earth, <laughs> we're not here to save the earth. Number two, even if the climate wasn't in trouble, yeah. we're all going to die. Yeah. Every single person is going to die. This so is when true. you put those two things together, What I come away with is this, we live in a state of change. The arc of that change is now really clear. That 10, 20 million people are gonna die in one week from climate change in the next couple of years. That entire cities are gonna become uninhabitable. That Miami Beach is basically gone in 10 years. These are really clear uh, gates on the path. But the market, the market is really powerful. Human beings have an enormous amount of initiative. We paved the whole planet in less than fifteen years. We created the most powerful computer ever built, and for seven hundred dollars, you can have it in your pocket, and a billion people do. We, I mean, we know how to do extraordinarily audacious things if we figure out how to coordinate our actions to get them done. And And if there's an
0: incentive, right?
1: Right. Well, different ways of coordinating action. One of the ways is, you know, the market is a system without a ball. So if we price carbon fairly, yeah. that system will get to work instantly yeah. to change what we do and how we do it. In the meantime, people in the technology world were making great progress on things like fusion. Solar is now way cheaper than yeah. oil or coal. So things are moving in the right direction. Too late hmm. to save so many people from decades of distress. I'm not minimizing it. What I'm saying yeah. is, What we can't do is believe the brainwashing of plastic recycling because it doesn't work. We can't believe that our personal carbon footprint makes us a hypocrite, so we should just shut up and do nothing. What we have to do instead is realize that carbon footprint was invented by British petroleum to trick us and that we need systemic change because we have a systemic problem. And humans have made systemic change before, and we can do it this time if we care and we talk about it and talk about
0: it. Damn, I love that. And I think that you put that in such a great way. Like, I I think it was a recent podcast where you were talking about pricing uh, petroleum fairly. And I thought about that. I'm a huge car enthusiast. And I'm like, would I be stoked to drive for $20 a gallon? Yeah, maybe on the weekends. And like, do I need to do that every day? No. So like... I love your take on that of just like putting the problem back to the problem of like capitalism. Like it's just been valued so low where if you give every person that question of like, here's how much gas should actually cost. Do you want to spend your money? A lot of people right. will probably say no. And if they still want to, then all right, you're paying enough where you can make it a little more sustainable. I thought that was a really cool outlook that I hadn't heard before. I had one other question just in me being a fan of Seth Godin and and like just Curious of, of you, what uh like what's a day in the life look like for you these days? Like you've obviously, you know, like I think you're probably at the point where you get to do the things that you find fulfilling. You can say no to the stuff that you don't, and it's uh probably much more of your schedule. So like what's what's your day in the life? What are you stoked on? What are you working on? What are you? What do you, uh, what's a fulfilling day for you these days?
1: Every day is different on purpose because that's the way my personality works. But I try to be outside every day. I'm working hard and improving my juggling skills, like really? actual juggling skills. And um, it's very clear after you hit whatever age you want to name that there is a finite number of good days left and you shouldn't waste them on somebody else's agenda. <sighs>
0: Damn. But again, here's a crazy one that I think about is you work very hard to not do meetings. Dude, you took an hour of your day to get on a Zoom call with me. Like, is that not a meeting? That's crazy
1: to me that you value that. That's not a meeting. That's a conversation. Conversations are priceless.
0: (laughs) You're good at this. You're really good at this. That's a huge differentiating point. I think a lot of people could mix that up. I think a lot of people could look at their day and their life and their schedule and try to cut out conversations and misconstrue that as a meeting. That's a yep. huge thing. Exactly. You'll have conversations, but you, you'll cut out meetings.
1: That's good. <laughs> what a pleasure to talk to you, Andrew.
0: Dude, thank, thank you. for you doing this. So, thank you. Oh my God.